Good morning. Our scripture passage today is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 30 through 40. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stay standing. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, Father, grant us understanding. Father, grant us hearts of repentance. And Father, give us the fortitude and the grace needed, paid for by your son Jesus, to go live and do as you've called us to do, Father. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. I feel like the author here many times in verse 32, and he says, and what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell. There's so much to be said and so little time to say it. There's so much that happens here in these 10 verses. It was like he was rolling through all these names and he realizes, oh my goodness, if we keep this pace, we'll be here forever. And so he speeds up and just rattles off all these incredible, amazing stories. So what we're going to do today, the challenge for us to do, or the challenge that lays before us, is to not get caught in the weeds uh, and miss the bigger picture. So he speeds up, uh, and so we're going to try to mimic his pace and try to pick up on what he's doing for us here in these 10 verses. So we're going to, as I sat before our kids last night at dinner and our Sabbath meal and we were talking about this, the temptation was to talk about the details of Jericho or the details of Rahab, and, and, and all those details certainly matter. But he doesn't go into those details. He flies over these really quickly to show us, I think, a bigger picture that we need to grab a hold of. But before we get to, before I get to naming that bigger picture, let me remind us of the context that we're in. We've been talking about faith. And faith is such a multifaceted gift. 
Meaning there's, there's different angles, there's different, there's different pieces to the diamond, or not different pieces, but different facets. There's different angles of the diamond. And we've been looking at those different facets to name those. First of all, what is faith? Faith is a conduit through which all that Christ is flows to us. Like all that he is for us flows to us. Through faith, we get the gift of eternal life. It is the conduit by grace through faith, we say. It is through faith that we grab hold of what is unseen. So what is faith? There's more we can say there, but the bigger picture here. Then we talked about what are the benefits of faith. The benefits of faith, just to name one, being able to taste or see or smell something that is not physically perceptible. Being able to taste or to see it, even though you cannot see it right in front of you with your own eyes, but you can see it with the eyes of faith. We talked about what do you do with faith. We talked about this last week, that we have to learn to see then with the eyes of faith. Every single situation with the eyes of faith. That's what it means to, in Romans 14, I believe it is, where we're to, everything is to proceed from faith. If we're to live and everything we do is to proceed from faith, then we must have eyes of faith. From seeing the kid jumping off the bunk bed to the hard situation with your spouse, whatever the case is, the good moments, the bad moments, seeing it all with eyes of faith. Today we're going to talk about what is the outcome of faith, another facet of the diamond. And once again, I think this is a place where we oftentimes get tripped up. I think the author is comparing for us two, or juxtaposing, if you will, two groups or two distinct sets of people that represent a spectrum or a continuum, but he's going to represent it by these two separate groups of people. One is going to be a group where visible success is the outcome of faith. Visible success, ideal situations. Good, as we would say, like preferable circumstances. Visible success is, gonna, is a phrase I'm going to use to represent that. The other group being visible suffering. Visible suffering as the outcome of faith. So these groups are living in faith, by faith, but their outcomes are extensively different visibly different, one preferable, one not so preferable. None of us are called to prefer suffering. One visible success, one visible suffering. Both groups, however, are commended for one thing and one thing only, their faith. So there's something that unites the group although there are many things that distinguish the group. Both are commended only for their faith, and both will have to wait for the promise. Namely, eternal blessing through Jesus Christ. They will have to wait for that. So you have two groups, visible success, visible suffering, 
Both, though commended only for their faith, and both are to wait for eternal blessing till Christ comes in this verse called the promise. And I think when, when it comes to understanding faith as it relates to outcome, we get tripped up here. For some of us, it depends on where we're at, we tend to think of faith only as it relates to difficulties in life. Well, a family member has cancer, and as sad and hard as that is, well, we better have faith. We better strengthen our faith. Everyone seems to turn to faith in that moment, as you should. But we tend to think of faith only, oftentimes, in those moments, or the moments we get attacked by pagans. We better have faith in this moment. But then, but then I, I don't think uh, that the general... Uh, struggle when it comes to faith and its outcomes, just broadly speaking in the Christian church, is not so much about having faith in difficult circumstances, but what about having faith in successful circumstances? When it comes to conquering or moving forward or preferable situations, we, we tend to like shun faith in that moment. Well, if, if, if I equate faith and it having this outcome of preferable circumstances, somehow now one is being arrogant or being worldly-minded. I mean, don't, don't, you, don't, 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 you, don't, don't forget, we're Christians. We're supposed to be poor, abused people. And so we tend to, depending on our circumstances, uh, depending on our frame, we, we, we tend to associate faith in a particular set of outcomes. And then I think broadly as a culture of Christians beyond our church, the idea of faith and preferable circumstances tends to be uh, separated. They don't tend to go together. But you certainly need faith during difficult times. We've got to be careful that we don't wrongly define what the outcome of faith looks like. So with that said, the first thing I want to talk about is faith in conquering. Faith in conquering. I don't mean faith in the act of conquering, but more like in the season of conquering. Faith in a season of visible success. Let me read for you the first five verses of our passage today once again. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Faith in conquering. Sometimes... Faith through conquering looks like doing the ridiculous. Let me give you a list here. I'm going to give you sometimes faith through blank, 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 blank. The first one, sometimes faith through conquering looks like doing the, quote, ridiculous. 
The, the first thing to stand in the way of God's people as they walked into the land was this incredible city of Jericho, which was fortified probably beyond anything that they had ever seen. And instead of their strategy conversation of being, well, you know, this team's going to go here and we're going to, you know, get over this wall, this direction, and, and so on and so forth, what's, what are they told? We'll go march around the city. That's ridiculous. What you have in this moment is you have an impossible situation, namely this fortified, great, powerful city, plus ridiculous actions, equals God's salvation. Here's the point. The point for the people of God to learn as they walked into this moment is that they will be saved by grace through faith alone. That it's not going to be through their scheming. It's not going to be through how strong they are in battle. It's not going to be how strong their military might is. It's not going to be how good their plans are or how they keep from retreating or any of those things. They're going to be saved by grace through faith. God alone will keep them, yet it will look ridiculous. I mean, could you imagine the pagans at this moment jeering and laughing? Who do these people think they are? Probably making fun of them and laughing and sharing their posts and such. These guys are funny. I bet they don't know how to fight. I'm sure they were not saying that anymore when the walls all came crumbling down. But what God was showing them and the Israelites during these moments through this ridiculous act is that they would be saved by grace through faith alone. Sometimes, faith through conquering involves defiance. Rahab was fully persuaded of what God had promised to the Israelites. Again, she was a pagan at this point. She was not a Jew. She asked pardon for herself and her friends as though they were already conquerors. You understand, the, the faith that Rahab would have had to have to stake her life on the success of this military endeavor. So sure of it that she says, that's the side I'm going to be on. In all this, she did not consider them the people or men, women, I, but God himself. That was what was on her forefront. The evidence of her faith, though, the, the visible expression of her faith, or the evidence of her faith, was indeed her defying her country by receiving the spies, even at the risk of her own life. It was treason. Her act of faith looked like treason. And let's take note of this. Don't miss this. Hebrews... A New Testament book is saying that her faith, expressed via defiance, was worthy of commendation. Sp 
Spurgeon said this of Rahab, I am prepared to be handed down to infamy as a traitor to my country if it is necessary for taking in these spies. For I know it is God's will it should be done, and I will do it at all costs. Next, sometimes faith through conquering involves the amazing, for lack of better terms. Daniel stopped the mouths of lions. The three amigos quenched the power of fire, escaping the edge of the sword. Sometimes the outcome of faith looks like the amazing. Sometimes God chooses to do something extraordinary. Next, sometimes faith through conquering involves imperfection. Sometimes faith through conquering involves imperfection. I know this is hard for some of you uh, who idolize perfection. But listen, Samson is overcome by a concubine and his sin. Jephthah is hasty in making a foolish vow. Gideon was slower to take up arms than what he ought to have been. And Calvin says this, Thus, in all the saints, something reprehensible is ever to be found. Yet faith, halting, uh, though halting and imperfect, is still approved by God. There is therefore no reason why the faults, listen, listen to me church, there, or listen to Calvin here, there is therefore no reason why the faults we labor under should break us down or dishearten us, provided we by faith go on in the race of our calling. If sin gets you down, it's a faith issue. Sometimes faith through conquering involves imperfection. Meaning the saints of which are living by faith will be imperfect. Repent and going on about the race is your calling. Repent and move on. That's freedom. Only caveat I would give is sometimes repentance is more than just saying you're sorry. You might have to fix things. You might have to walk it back. But repent and leave it at the cross and move on. Run the race. It should not break us down or dishearten us, Calvin says. Again, where's the point coming from in the passage? Samson, Jephthah, Gideon are examples where they're commended for faith, though they showed or displayed some foolishness and sinfulness. I mean, David's a great example here as well. Sometimes faith through conquering comes out of weakness. 
Sometimes faith through conquering comes out of weakness. Others were made strong out of weakness through faith, it says. Samson forfeited his strength through folly, yet regained it in the end through faith. What a marvelous picture. He was weak, but through faith he was made strong. And his weakness was not just some random weakness he had. It was a weakness that was a result of his sinfulness. So he sinned. He became weak. But then through faith, he was made strong. How often do we tend to think, I've sinned, I've got this weakness, like it's caused this weakness, this, this brokenness, but you know, I don't know what God can do with that. Samson shows us that God can even use that to make us strong. Next, I'm going to rattle off three here together. Faith through conquering involved three things, subduing kingdoms, enforcing justice, and obtaining promises. Subduing kingdoms, enforcing justice, and obtaining promises. I'm going to draw a distinction here in this list You can go look at it later, but you have this list of where he says those things explicitly, and then he talks about the shutting the mouths of lions and quenching the power of fire and so on and so forth. I I think there's two separate lists here, categorically speaking. You have the list of these amazing things that happened in these individuals' lives, and then you have this list of these three things here at the beginning that happened corporately. These three things just obtaining promises, enforcing justice, subduing kingdoms. This is something that Israel does every place they go as a group. The faith through conquering involves subduing kingdoms, enforcing justice, obtaining promises. The question is, so what about us as New Testament Christians? What does this look like for us? Are we to subdue kingdoms? Are we to enforce justice? Are we to obtain God's promises? If we're going to say yes to one, if we're going to interpret one one way, we should probably interpret them all similarly. I think our modern Christian view that we tend to functionally live by is we're just going to sit around, make sure we're good little people, and wait for Jesus to come back. So what does this look like? Now, I just want to remind us of the the entire context of Hebrews 11 has been about faith to emulate so that we persevere. Faith to emulate, not just to emulate, but so that we would persevere. So it's interesting. I was talking to someone just Friday about how, like, talking about their kids in school and, and giving a defense, like being able to stand up for what they believe and so on and so forth. And my encouragement was not just be able to defend when you need to defend, 
what you believe, but teach your kids how to be on the offensive. So it's funny here that as we talk about faith that to emulate, that would help us persevere, you have a faith that's been clearly on the offensive, a faith that has been moving forward, a faith that is conquering kingdoms, that is enforcing justice, that is obtaining God's promises. It is moving forward. And this doesn't matter, for the record, what eschatological views you own. Whether you're a premillennialist, a postmillennialist, or an amillennialist, that's my point. This is a faith that we're to have, one that is moving forward, that is progressing forward. So we too should have faith that subdues kingdoms. Now, they physically conquered kingdoms. Does that mean we should go kill kings, slaughter whole nations, and establish new thrones? Um, I'm not going to sign up for that anytime soon. I don't think you should either. But the Great Commission demands that we make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. Now, does that mean whole nations will come to faith in Christ? Maybe. Maybe not. I don't think he guarantees that or at least exactly what that looks like. But should that be our aim? Yes. It should be as many people and as many nations as possible following and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Absolutely. And then as that kingdom has more and more people transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that kingdom will increasingly be subdued. This is not much different from the subduing work of the Israelites at the same time. Yes, there was physical things involved here, but what was it about? It was about the purity of the nation following the Lord. Our call is the same thing. It's about the purity of people following the Lord. You see this modeled in the New Testament as well, where the people of God go, it has great effect on the kingdom of man. For example, it took them no longer than a few decades to make such an impact, the church that is, no longer than a few decades to make such an impact on the Roman Empire that they began to persecute the Christians. Well, why would they persecute the Christians? Because they were a threat. Because they felt the subduing power of the gospel. So we got to push back on that. In our immediate context, just the last chapter, it says, For you had compassion on those, verse 34, uh, for those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I mean, there's much going on there, but the point, my point is this is their faithfulness is a threat to the king of the age, to the kingdoms that they lived in. Our faith is a threat to the prince and power of the air. Ephesians 2. Your life of obedience is a threat to the kingdom of man. Your faithful parenting your kids 
to follow the Lord is a threat to the kingdom of men. At the very least, how do we subdue kingdoms? We teach people to know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all. We teach our kids. We teach our spouse. We teach our neighbor. Not only should we have faith that subdues kingdoms, but we should have faith that enforces justice or establishes righteousness. Love God, love neighbor. That's what Jesus says, right? How do we define love God, love neighbor? How is Jesus defining love God, love neighbor? God's law. We should, as God's people, insist on God's law in every way and in every place. Now, it is true, absolutely. I don't want to get into caveat and this. Maybe we'll talk some more on cold pizza tomorrow. But it is true that no one can obey God's law in a way that pleases God apart from the grace of the gospel and repentance and faith. That is absolutely true. But it is also true that God's law is still good for all of humanity. We should insist, even on outward conformity to God's law, but we should then pray and hope for inward transformation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a good law that transing kids be forbidden, or even, well, not or, but in addition, be punished. That would be a good law. It's a good law that we not allow the... Uh, abortion or the aborting of human beings. That is a good law. Briefly here, what's the role of the government? Because that's where this kind of, how do we enforce justice? I'm I'm not going to spend much time here. But Romans 13, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Verse 3, for, rules, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That is the limits and the expectations of the government, pagan or otherwise. The role of the government is to not just be God's sovereign hand, but to be God's sovereign hand in rewarding good and punishing evil. That's their role. That's the, their role is to enforce justice, to establish righteousness. We then as the people of God, in the faith through conquering, we should expect the government to do just that. Again, remember, Paul's not talking about a theocracy here. I mean, that's not what's going on in Romans 13. These are thoroughly pagans. And this is the expectation of them. Moving on. Faith obtains promises. Faith obtains promises. What I more want to zero in here on the obtaining promises is the fact that this faith has an, an active 
working that brings about the realization of God's promises. And so the outcome of faith sometimes involves the experiencing the delight of God's promises realized. Now we have to be careful that we don't put God in a place where we say, well, if I do A, B, and C, that my life will look like D, E, and F. But we must believe that by faith and its subsequent actions comes the realization of God's promises in our lives. Listen, Jericho or uh, Joshua could believe all he wanted that marching around the city and blowing the trumpets and the walls would come crumble down. But if he did not actually go do it, it would have never actually happened. You can believe that the Bible would be your greatest source of, of guidance and delight in the law of God. But if you don't actually go read it, then it will be of no promise benefit to you. Faith obtains promises. Next, and I'm going to defer this actually to Cold Pizza tomorrow, to talk about women received back the dead by resurrection. So you'll have to tune in tomorrow for that one. And here's what I want to say. If this is how God worked in these times, it is also how we will find him working today if only we'll look to him in the same kind of faith. Now again, Though we're painting this picture of where faith leads to in our circumstances. And it'd be really easy if the story stopped here, or if the sermon stopped here, it'd be really easy for us to have this sense that faithfulness only leads to visible successfulness. Or that faithfulness only ever leads to uh, desirable outcomes or preferred circumstances. But that's not the picture we see here. Sometimes faith leads to suffering. So faith and suffering. Let's walk through this one. Verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Funny story. One of my kids at dinner last night said, Dad, what does he mean by sawn in two? I said, like, sawn in two. (laughs) <laughs> and he, he went, oh, it was a, a very uh, solemn moment there. Sawn in two, that's, he, he's, he is not speaking metaphorically here. He says, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So here we have people who trusted God, meaning they were living by faith, that were subjected to the greatest of trials, mocked, flogged, chained, stoned, sawn in two, killed, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, tortured to death. Second century B.C. Jews who stood up to Seleucid King Antiochus of Epiphanes, who persecuted them by requiring them to eat swine flesh and sacrifice to Greek gods. I don't think the FDA would approve of of that one. 
This kind of sacrifice, I mean, I'm quoting someone now, that kind of, this kind of sacrifice and fidelity is incomprehensible to the man who does not know God, but to the eyes of faith, it is reckoned a fair bargain, however unpleasant, even a privilege and honor to suffer for God's sake. He goes on, the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God and no torment will ever touch them. In the eyes of the foolish, they seem to have died, and their departure was thought to be an affliction, and they're going from us to be their destruction. But they are at peace, for though in the sight of men they were punished, their hope is full of immortality. So sometimes faith through suffering looks like being abused or mistreated. The temptation for us, I think for many of us, not all of us, but the temptation for some of us is that if life is not going a preferable way, then I must be doing something wrong. I must be sinning, or I must be unwise. Maybe it's your very act of faithfulness and wisdom that is resulting in the outcome of suffering. Don't, don't equate. That's why I say we have to understand biblically how to think about outcomes in faith, because if not, we'll assess faith backwards the wrong way. Then we'll shrivel up and shrink back, be conquered ourselves. Can you imagine looking at Paul as he's being stoned and saying, hey, Paul, dude, if you'd have been just a little more empathetic or just a little more nice or if you'd have had just a little bit better tone or a little more understanding or if you'd have just listened, you know, for two hours longer. Maybe then you wouldn't have gotten stoned, Paul. Or, or maybe those who are of the flesh hate the things of God, and it simply does not matter how it's said to them. Yet this is how we've been trained to believe as Christians. If something's not going the way we want it to go, or particularly if you're thinking relationally, and a pagan gets mad at us, we must be doing something wrong. It's easy for us, particularly for you ladies, if your husband gets attacked for his faithfulness, well, he must have done something wrong. Or your church leaders get attacked, they must be doing something wrong. Sometimes faith through suffering looks like being mistreated. Sometimes it looks like getting stoned, sawn in two, or killed with the sword. Just for the record, we're a little far from that at this point, Okay? None of us are being threatened uh, with a stoning yet. So what are you guys, here's my point in that. Here's, here's what I'm trying to subtly say. I'll, I'll speak it plainly. If you're, if you're debating whether or not it's faithful based on the outcome of suffering now, how are you going to do when the suffering increases? 
when it gets harder, when the consequences are greater, when there is a threat of physical pain. You can't judge the faithfulness based on the outcome of the circumstances, but measured only against the Word of God. Sometimes faith through suffering looks like being abused. Sometimes faith through suffering looks like wandering. Not wondering, wandering with an A. They didn't get to keep their homes. They're, in the Hebrews 10 passage, their, their possessions were taken from them. Again, remember, this isn't a prescription for how our lives must look, a.k.a. that we must lose everything and we can't fight for anything and just buy time till Jesus gets back. But it's a reminder that faith doesn't always give us sunflowers, roses, and seashell collecting. Sometimes it looks like the taking of our homes. Again, don't miss this. Faith does not always land you into visible or material or preferable circumstances. So don't mistake that. Don't think that faith always leads to visible or material success, nor don't fall into the other ditch that faith always leads to losing visibly or materially. Also note that both items are present and real potentials for both Old Testament saints and New Testament Christians. Saints. Let me remind you of this. That though they suffered, they were no less triumphant. They were no less triumphant. They were still conquerors. They were enabled by the grace of God to honor Him by faithfully enduring to the end. Indeed, it says, of whom the world was not worthy. Do you see that? What have you considered if we had Paul here today and he's being stoned you get on social media and say, you know what, you all are not worthy of Paul, which would be a very true statement. You're not worthy. Could you imagine like the feedback you'd get on that one? What do you mean I'm not worthy? Of whom the world was not worthy. These people who suffered, the world was not worthy. They were thought unfit or unworthy by the world because of their faith in God. When in reality, this world, because of its unbelief, was not a fit place for them. How about that for some gaslighting? Just remember that the next time a heathen slanders you. Those who suffer for righteousness' sake... This world is not worthy of them. 
The last thing I want you to see here is that commendation comes only through faith. That commendation from God comes only through faith. Thirty-nine through forty. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Commendation comes only through faith. So we need to also realize that many of God's promises don't come with due dates or often meet our expectations. It's really easy for us when we hear God say, you know, I'm going to give you promise A, and then we fill in everything around promise A, right? It's going to look this way, it's going to be at this time, it's going to be involving this person, it's going to look this way, and and God's like, well, you know, I, I see you're getting all worked up about that, but I didn't promise you any of that. He didn't promise the saints at this time that, that what he had promised would happen during their lifetime, but he still promised it. The circumstances of the outcome of faith are varied, and we'd be wise to not put expectations on God that He has not promised us. I think so much of our Christian discouragement comes not because God is unfaithful to anything that He has said, but because you judge Him unfaithful because He's not keeping what you've said. You're holding him to a promise that he has not made you. In fact, I think that's cause for a lot of our interpersonal relationships and struggles too. We hold people to, to standards, and in this case, we hold people to promises that they did not make. They did not receive what was Promised. They were promised this coming Messiah, but he did not meet that promise in their lifetime. They had to wait. God had reasons. We'll get to those in a minute. Again, though they were commended, they did not receive this promise. Notice that this is the first time that promise is in the singular. In Hebrews, it's promises, 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 promises. Here, it's talking about a singular promise. One commentator said this, These heroes of faith were waiting to see all these things that are better, things that can be seen only through faith in Jesus Christ. If these Old Testament saints could believe not seeing Christ, knowing only shadows and not the reality, not seeing with anything like our clarity the purchase price of our redemption by the cross, then how much more faith ought we to have than they, we who are called by his very name? Calvin says this, a tiny spark of light 
Speaking of the Old Testament saints, a tiny spark of light led them to heaven. But now that the sun of righteousness shines on us, what excuses shall we offer if we still cling to the earth? So what is this better thing? These better things that were, that uh, since God had provided something better for us, if you don't know already, He's comparing the the differences between the administration of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The same thing we've been doing in Hebrews the whole time. Comparing the Old Covenant and the New Covenant now that Christ has come. Namely, we enjoy a superior means of grace than what they had. Canaan, the land of Canaan, was a figurative heaven. It It was a display. It was a shadow The ceremonies and sacrifices were a shadow of what? They were pointing to Christ and his atonement. The lamb's blood sprinkled on the door that we just talked about was what? As a a shadow, a foreshadow of something to come. So you understand, they had shadows, and they had faith as they saw shadows. We have the real thing. The shadow has given way to Christ himself. We have faith now that's different, that's better. And it says here that they were not made perfect apart from us. So they only had the shadow. We have the Christ. What the shadow, what's casting the shadow, Jesus himself. That's better. And what he's saying here is they were not made perfect apart from us from the real thing. That's why he waited. Because God has, here's why, because God has sovereignly ordained that his entire family of faith, old covenant and new, be perfected by the same sacrifice and shall together enjoy its purchased blessings throughout an endless eternity. Here's where I want to land. Their names are written here only because of their faith. We've got to be so careful. It's so tempting for us to say it's because of our awesomeness in this area of life. Or it's easy for us to say because we have some mental agreement with some statements that saves us. Their names are not written here Let me remind you, because of how perfect they were, some made big mistakes. They're not here because of how visibly successful their decisions were. Some were tortured and killed. Their names are not listed here because of how much they suffered. Some were great kings and warriors. All of these were commended through their faith. That's it. That's it. Does it mean the other stuff doesn't matter? Surely, you cannot draw that conclusion. But as it comes to their commendation, it was because of their faith alone, in Christ alone, ultimately. Faith, again, is believing God's words, and faith has action. But it is the faith component 
that is the conduit through which salvation flows. You will be saved and I will be saved by grace through faith that perseveres to the end. A faith that believes and a faith that works. But you and I will not be saved by how perfect we are. We, our faith will not guarantee visible success. Faith does not necessarily result in suffering. But indeed, faith is the only way we will receive commendation from the Lord. Because it is by faith through which all that Christ is for us, our righteousness, our guarantee, all that he is for us becomes ours through faith. And that commendation that we get is because of his righteousness that is now ours. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that no matter our circumstances, no matter the outcome of our faith, no matter the results of the faithfulness that happens in our life, or the consequences we pay, or the successes that we appear to have. Father, let us measure our faith against your word, and let us rest there. And Father, I believe that your people will be kept until the very end, such that their faith will be that which they are commended for. Father, I believe this. Let your people believe this too. That they are safe and secure in your hands, even their very faith. Father, for you kept people like David, kept people like Samson. You kept those who suffered and were mistreated. Father, you will keep us too. Father, for your glory for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.